Well, I want you to imagine that I retire. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm only 51. I got life in me yet. Come on, right? It's not time. But imagine I retire and you guys get a new lead pastor and he comes in and he says things like, Pastor Rick, bless his heart, bless his heart. He tried really hard and he did a lot of good things. He got a lot of things right. Like all that Jesus stuff he told you was really, really good to start with. But listen, I, uh, I, your new lead pastor, want to lead us into a season where we're going to be serious Christians. We're going to be mature. We're going to be committed. We're going to be devout. We're going to be like really go for this. You want that, right? You want to be a real true Christian? Then you need Jesus plus something else. And, and listen, that, that guy will be standing right here. And he will be presuming to preach from the word of God. And you will want to be in submission to your spiritual leader. And, and my fear is that you might buy it. Jesus plus something else. And listen, I said I, I'm retired, not dead. So I'm going to hear about it. I'm going to write you a letter. And in that letter, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say you are foolish. You're foolish. Both oars not in the water. Like one beer short of a six-pack, half a bubble off plum. I love these things. I could go all day, right? Like you're not the brightest bulb on the tree. You're not the sharpest crayon in the box, knife in the drawer, tool in the shed. I don't know. You're just foolish. You're like, wait a minute, time out. Like no pastor would call his whole congregation foolish, right? We're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Look what it says here. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? <laughs> Paul is writing to the churches in southern Galatia, and he calls them foolish. And, and some, of that, some of you are rattled by that. Look, when you're a spiritual leader, sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody who's being foolish is call them foolish. And he does that. Now, what was their foolishness? Well, they were buying into this lie. See, Paul had done his missionary journeys. He planted a church, moved out of the city. These opponents, sometimes called Judaizers, they come in. And they were saying things like, yes, yes, you start Christianity by Jesus, by grace, by faith, by the Spirit. But then you must add your sweat to it. You see, God gets the job started, but you've got to finish the job. They were buying that. And so what Paul does in this passage, he interrogates them. Did you notice there's five questions in five verses? And his basic question is this. What were you thinking? Parents, you ever ask your kid that? What were you thinking? Like when you ask your kid that, you understand it's a totally rhetorical question. There's no answer your kid can give you that they're going to go, oh, yeah, well, that made sense. It's just not happening, right? It's rhetorical. In fact, you want a Caleb story? You always like Caleb stories, right? We had several of these moments. So one time when Caleb was just a little dude, it was when he learned that he could pee outside and the whole world opened up, right? Like, this is, this is great. Best thing since sliced bread. So he's back in his bedroom. 
and he feels the urge. So what he would do, this happened regularly, he would get up, go down the hallway, past the bathroom, through the family room, out the back door. He would go out behind his shed. We called that Caleb's personal urinal. Nothing grows there to this day. <laughs> like, and, and he would relieve himself. Then he would go back in the family room, down the hall, past the bathroom, into his bedroom, and keep playing. I was fine with that. Until he reversed the process. He's outside playing. Feels the urge. He gets up. He goes through the family room, down the hall, past the bathroom, into his bedroom, pees in the corner. He's like a dog marking his turf in his bedroom. And of course, I said, what were you thinking? It's rhetorical. There's no explanation he could give. I go, oh, yeah, that made sense. Why don't you do that? No. What were you thinking? This is what Paul's ha he's having a what were you thinking moment with the Galatians. It's like, listen, Galatians, what were you thinking? It was before you that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified, which means Paul preached the cross to them over and over and over, told them about the cross. Now, what he's saying there is that means the Messiah, when he came, the Messiah didn't come to shout more rules at you, more laws. What he did is he came to do something on your behalf, to be crucified. And Paul's like, hey, um, I told you about that part, right? I told you about the cross like every day. I told you about that. Then why, listen, why the cross if indeed you still need to earn it? Like, why the cross if you still, when Jesus, listen, when Jesus hung there on the cross, do you remember what he said? It is started. It's not what he said, is it? He said it is finished. He didn't say it is started, he said it is finished. So, listen, the law says do. The rules say do. Religion says do. The cross says done. It's done. He's like, I told you that part about the crucifixion, right? Now, listen, you, you might say that. Well, listen, Pastor Rick, we're not all done, are we? Like, aren't we supposed to grow? Like, you say no, grow, go. The middle one is grow. Aren't we supposed to grow? Last week, Pastor Jared, another awesome sermon from him. He talked in there about justification. Remember that? That it's to be declared innocent or to be declared righteous. This week is a little bit more about sanctification. Sanctification is our progressive growth in Christ, where even in the midst of a fallen world, we're in the process of becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus. That's sanctification. So yes, we need to grow. But here's the thing. Don't miss this. The mechanism is the same. Okay? Grace, faith, the work of God, that is the mechanism for justification. It's also the mechanism for sanctification. It's all grace, all faith, all the work of God. No, grow, go. They all have the same mechanism. You don't start by grace and finish by works. So here's Paul. And basically what he's saying then is as you're in this sanctification process, listen, here's a question. Why are you rowing in a sailboat. Okay, where'd you get that? He talks in there about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son. He is God, but it's the Holy Spirit. The word Spirit that he uses there, in Greek, that's the word pneuma. You tool guys. Pneumatic. You know what pneumatic is? That uses wind power to blow, Right? So it's the holy wind of God could be translated that way. The holy wind of God. Now let me ask you this. 
You ever have that experience in the Christian life where you're straining at the oars? And sometimes it's just so much work. And it's so hard, and it's so exhausting, and you're sweating, and your, your back's tired, and you're rowing, and I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere. And Paul is saying, why are you rowing in a sailboat when the wind is blowing? And the whole idea is that the Holy Spirit, the wind of God is blowing through your life and you've got to hoist your sail. Let him fill you. Let him empower you. Let him lead you. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. Why are you rowing in a, so- a sailboat? Now that starts to get into issues about the Spirit-filled life. We'll come back to that a little bit more in chapter 5. It deals with it in depth. But for now, Paul wants us to catch that this idea of rowing in a sailboat is foolishness. Paul's like, this is, it's all grace, it's all faith, it's all Christ, it's all the Spirit. This is how you begin in Christianity. This is how you continue in Christianity. Justification and sanctification have the same mechanism. Hoist your sail. Hoist your sail. Oh, well, that sounds good. Uh, but here's a question. Is that biblical? Oh, you think it is because you have the New Testament. But remember my hypothetical. New pastor comes in, starts to teach something different. We disagree. Me and him, we disagree. Who's right? And how do you know? You go to the Bible, right? But you're thinking New Testament. So Paul's got these opponents that are both teaching different things. And they are accusing Paul of being unbiblical. The only Bible they had at the time, we call it the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures. So, this brings up a notion that we unfortunately have, that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. You'll hear this time to time, right? So like, so like is in the Old Testament, it's an eye for an eye. In the New Testament, it's turn the other cheek. In the Old Testament, it's smite your enemies. In the New Testament, it's love your enemies. Right? And then somebody, like you get really ticked at somebody and you want to open a can on them, so you're like, well, I'm more of an Old Testament guy. <laughs> Shut up. That's not a thing, right? So, but but the, you want to go there because you think the God in the Old Testament is different than the God in the New Testament. So here's a question. Maybe in the Old Testament it's salvation by works, but in the New Testament it's salvation by grace through faith. Maybe it's different. Is this stuff biblical? And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to show that the idea of grace stretches right back through the Old Testament. The same God in the Old Testament and New Testament, same gospel, it's always been by grace that's biblical. And he'll do that by talking about Abraham. So let's continue. In verse 6 he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, what's going on here? I already told you that it, the first two chapters of Galatians are like biography, a story. Paul's telling his story to defend his gospel and his apostleship. As we shift into chapter 3, as we have, he shifts to two chapters of theology, where he's going to show that this gospel is true biblically, showing it from the Old Testament. And so to do that, he goes towards Abraham. Here's why. Remember his opponents, sometimes called Judaizers, 
they wanted, they, they said, listen, in order for a Gentile to become Christian, she must first become Jewish. You've got to be Jewish in order to become a Christian. <laughs> so Paul's like, um, well, let's talk about Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is the father of the Jews. And the Judaizers would love Abraham. He'd be like their hero, right? So Paul's like, cool, let's talk about Abraham. Abraham was not a great man. He had faith in a great God. And that's different. So he's going to show that. So verse 6 there, you see the quotes in there. He is referring to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And I'll give you the cliff notes on that story. Basically, Abraham was a pagan, okay? He didn't go to God. God went to Abraham. Abraham didn't seek God. God sought out Abraham, grabbed a hold of him. And one of the things going on in Abraham's life is Abraham, his wife, he's married to his wife. Uh, her name's Sarah, right? And Sarah and Abraham are old, okay? Um, they're, they're not like, um, they're not like 51 years old. I have gray hair and my knees hurt kind of old. They're like dirt old, okay? They're like walker with the tennis balls kind of old, right? They're, they're in their 80s. They're up there, okay? Now, understand this. Sarah is barren. Abraham and Sarah are completely childless. And, and when you're in your 80s and you're barren, you're done. You're just done unless God moves. And so what happens is God takes Abraham outside at night, it's one of those clear nights. Have you ever been out on a clear night and the stars are just magnificent? There's so many. So he says, Abe, look up at the sky. You see all those stars? So shall your offspring be. Wait, what? We're 80 and barren. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's impossible. Unless God moves. Abe can't get that done. He's tried. For years. It didn't work, right? Like, unless God moves. You know what else is crazy? <laughs> it would be totally insane for God to say that the secret for my life in 2021, the secret for my eternity, is that 2,000 years ago, he, stopped, <laughs> he came through a virgin birth and grew up and died on a cross and rose from the grave. That is crazy. And it makes no sense unless God did it. Unless God did it. So Abraham believed God. That was faith. That was trust in God. Abraham's faith was in God's ability, not in Abraham's. It was in God's activity, not in Abraham's. And that faith, because he believed God and took him at his word, it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith. He believed. Abraham was not a great man. He had faith in a great God. Now, what's interesting is the rest of Genesis 15 is the covenant God makes with Abraham. So what happens next is God, remember it was night, so he basically tucks Abraham in, sings him a lullaby. I don't know, Abe goes to sleep. God goes back outside and uh, performs the covenant ceremony. Now, the covenant ceremony worked like this. You take an animal and you would slice it in two. It's gross, but there it is. And you put both halves right there and the blood pools in the middle. And what would happen is if you and I made a covenant together, we would walk through the blood together and back. And what we're saying is, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may this be done to me. Cut me in two and I'll bleed all over. Do that to me if I don't keep my part of the covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep 
splits the animal, walks through it and back alone. What's he saying? It's got nothing to do with what Abraham does. God's picking up the tab. This is all on God. It's all by grace. That's Old Testament. And that's Paul's point. This is a forerunner to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a foreshadowing. And Paul's like, hey, Judaizers, <laughs> you guys like Abraham? Yeah, let's talk about him. Because Abraham was not a great man. He had faith in a great God. <laughs> Remember the Judaizers are so bunched up about circumcision? Circumcision doesn't come in until Genesis chapter 17. That's two chapters later than what I just described to you. Which means it's way after, listen... He already believed God. It was already counted to him as righteous. He was made righteous before God. God already performed the covenant with him, committing to Abraham. Circumcision wasn't even a thought yet. It would come later as an expression of what had already taken place. It didn't earn anything. Now, Paul's saying, now who's biblical? Now who's biblical? The same God, the same gospel in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. God doesn't have some split personality. God is not confused and working it out over time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God. So you see what Paul's doing there? He's like, checkmate. Let's talk Bible. Checkmate. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute, uh, Pastor. Aren't there a lot of laws? And like, the Old Testament has a whole bunch of rules. Like, are those just useless? What's the role? What's the purpose of those laws? Do they matter? All right, let's look at the last part of our passage. Picking it up in verse 10. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things. Oof. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That might seem a little bit confusing at first pass. But remember, Paul, what he's doing is he's showing the gospel from the Old Testament. See all the quotation marks in there? In five verses, Paul quotes from four different books in the Old Testament to show this is true. And it's all about the role of the law. What it does for us, what it doesn't do for us. Now, for us to understand that, I need to explain something to you. It's very important in our day and age that you understand this. The Old Testament rules or the laws can be broken down into three different categories. The civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. Okay? They're not all one. They're, they're, they're different. So the civil laws, remember, they're a theocracy. Religion and government ran together for them. We, we don't have that today. But, but so there are crimes and punishments that go with, there's things like that. As we come into the New Testament age, we're not a theocracy. The New Testament affirms various earthly governments that God has put in place. We're told to obey those laws. So the civil laws found in the Old Testament are not carried forward into the New Testament age. 
And there's the ceremonial. These are sometimes called the clean laws. These are the things that made Jews distinct. This is where you're going to get circumcision and the kosher diet and things like that. These are things that made them clean or for rich, uh, ritually clean for worship. Okay. You'll hear about these today as homosexuality is argued about in our culture. You'll see memes like, hey, you can't be against homosexuality unless you're also against eating shellfish and wearing polyester. Have you seen things like this? And that's because in the Old Testament, in the clean laws, the ceremonial laws, there are things like don't eat shellfish. So there goes shrimp, right? Bummer, right? And, and then there's, uh, you can't wear two kinds of fabric together. Well, there's polyester, which I'd be okay to lose polyester myself. But anyway, uh, but those are in the clean laws, the ceremonial laws. And, and so uh, those things are done with the new covenant. Those things are out. You don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. Those are done. But hold on, time out. Therefore, am I allowed to murder? Can I commit adultery? How about rape? How about stealing? How about lying? Can I? Wait a minute. The moral laws still hold. Those are the moral laws. Okay? And those do get carried forward into the new covenant age. And that includes the sexual ethic. See that? That's why it's important to understand that today. So civil law changes based on government. Ceremonial law is done with the old covenant. And the moral law, we are not freed from that. We should keep it. But, 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 it is not the basis for our salvation before God. Remember, pure gospel, no additives. It's the activity of God, not the activity of man. So yes, the moral law is something that helps us know how to live well and we need to pursue it. But in terms of our salvation, listen to this. The only thing the law does is, if you look in the passage, it brings a curse. It brings a curse. That's it. Here's what I want you to understand. The law makes you unholy, not holy. Oh, you think you pursue the law to become... No, the, law, the role of the law is to make you unholy, not holy. What it does is it highlights our need for a Savior. That's it. That's what it does. Now, if you look at those who live by, uh, live by the law, if you keep the law, you live by it, you don't keep it, you die by it, because nobody keeps it, it says in there. That, that's what's going on. So basically, if you keep the law, you live, but the problem is none of us keep it. Right? Wait, let me, let me put it this way. Did you ever have a friend growing up that said, hey, if you can make this shot, I'll give you a million dollars? Remember that? All right, if you stick this fork in your eye, I'll give you a million dollars. Your friend was not charting a course for you to become a millionaire. You understand that? A million was never going to be paid because the whole point is that you couldn't do it, you wouldn't do it, it's never going to happen. God is saying if you keep the law, you'll live. It's never going to be paid out. It's never going to happen. You'd never make it. The point is to show that it is impossible because it says you have to keep the whole, abide by all things written by the book of the law. Listen, if you have one little sin, you're out. We don't like that, right? That sounds a little harsh to us. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone who's only done one little sin? Neither do I. That applies to no one. The reality is that all of us are rebels against God. We've given him the finger. We've shoved him off the throne of our life, said, that's my chair. Thank you very much. I'll run my life. And tons of sin flows from that. That's all of us. And we're out. We're out. God says, if you keep the law perfectly, you will live. But it's not that we'll live by the law. It's to show that we never 
could, never would. And what that does is it pushes us towards the Savior, and I say, wow, I am so broken. I am so messed up. I've tried so often. I'm hopeless. I've trashed my connection with God. I'm condemned for all eternity, and I have no hope except that God graciously saves me despite myself. That's what the law does. That's the role of the law. You see, the Jews thought that they were blessed because they had the law of God, and the Gentiles were cursed because they didn't have it. And Paul says, no, that's not it. We're all cursed, both those who have the law and those who don't. In fact, the law just amplifies the curse. Think of it like an x-ray. Okay, you got a broken bone. The x-ray is what amplifies. It shows that you actually have a broken bone, right? It doesn't cause the broken bone. It just shows it off. The law is God's x-ray that we could see, holy crap, I'm broken. And I need Dr. Jesus or I have no hope. That's the law. It's a spiritual x-ray. So then how do we get holy? How do we solve this? Well, then we start to talk about the great exchange, which is talking, talked about in this passage. The, the great exchange is, is the vernacular, the, the theological term is substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus was our substitute. He stood in our place, taking the wrath of God intended for us onto himself. Therefore, he atoned, substitutionary atonement. He atoned for our sin and our unholiness. And that's in our passage. See, in Old Testament times, the way they crucified, uh, excuse me, they didn't crucify, the way they executed somebody is they would stone them to death, more often than not. Whole crowd would pick up rocks and just chuck them at the person until they're dead. Totally gross, right? But then what they would often do is they would take a wooden stake, run it through the body, and stick it in the ground for all to see that this person is under the divine rejection from God. So, there it is in the Old Testament. He quotes it. He says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed before God. Now, what did Jesus do? He was staked to a tree. He hung on a tree. That means Jesus is cursed before God. But wait a minute, time out. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is the only one who pulled off the million-dollar challenge. He's the only sinless one that had no curse of his own to pay for. What's he doing on that cross? He's paying my curse and yours. That's what he's doing. So as he hangs there, all of my curse is shifted off of me onto Jesus, and all of his righteousness is shifted onto me. That's the great exchange. I've heard it said this way, that sin is man substituting himself for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for man. And the great exchange. And it's not automatic. If you look at the end of our passage, see those last two words? Through faith. Faith. Now, this is not some abstract belief, like, well, I believe in God. You understand, Satan believes in God more than you. you get to, until we go home, he believes in God more than you. But he doesn't have trust, he doesn't have faith, he doesn't have relationship in connection, that's part of faith. So it's been explained like this before, that if I stood over here and I say, I believe that stool would support me, that's abstract belief. I believe that that stool exists. Faith is when I go over and I say, I believe this stool supports me, I entrust my life to it. I interact, I'm engaged with, I'm connected, and that's what faith is in our relationship with God. 
It's different. Now, once faith takes hold, that's when the great exchange happens. And in that moment, then, God sees me wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, which means God could never be disappointed in me. And all my curse has been stripped off me and put on Jesus. God could never be disappointed in me. He couldn't possibly love me more. He's smitten with me because of Christ. Now, granted, God's not naive. He knows I'm still a messed up person, and I am. But, but now... Uh, he and I are, gro- like, I'm growing under the lordship of Jesus, like, but it's, it's from faith and grace and joy. He has vision for my life and compassion, and we're going on an adventure together. I'm hoisting my sail. That's different. That's different. What Paul is doing is he's highlighting two very different systems. The Judaizers wanted to say the two systems were law keepers and law breakers. And Paul's like, you guys are foolish. You are all law breakers. That's just one group. So Paul's going to point out a different two-system structure. And and it's this. It's law-oriented versus faith-oriented. And I want you to catch the difference. Law-oriented versus faith-oriented. Okay, so law makes me holy. Law makes me unholy. I've got this. Or I need a savior. I'm going to earn it. Work hard. No, it's by grace. It is started. It is finished. Fear or love. Boasting or gratitude? Is it going to be condemning and shame, or is it going to be freeing? Am I going to row hard at the oars, or am I going to hoist my sail? Those are two very different systems. Now, evidently, there's a dirt road in Alaska that's very long, and there are ruts worn into it over the years. And there's a sign at the beginning of it that says, choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 60 miles. Okay. Here's what I think is going on. Paul has given us this sign. And he's saying, choose your life carefully. You're going to be in it the next 60 years and way beyond. Which system do you want to be a part of? Which system do you want to live in? And Paul's pulling his hair out because religion never cut it. Religion never helped. It only condemned us. It didn't help us. And so God decided to do something entirely unique. He split time and space, took on flesh in Jesus Christ, paid it on the cross, and rose from the grave to give us something different. And we're turning it back into the list on the left. We're turning it back into rules and law, and and Paul's like, you are foolish. That's foolish. But we're still doing it today. Here's what I want you to think about. What would it be like for you this week if you lived off the list on the right. What would that be like this week? How would that feel? What would it be like to live with a settled confidence that I am wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, I'm totally secure, God loves me? There's three things that I want you to consider that that might mean. The first is this. Let your unholiness drive you to Jesus. Let's be honest. you got sin in your life. You feel gross at times. And more often than not, my guess is when you feel gross, you run from God. That's foolish. That's part of the earning system. That's a list on the left. Our sin ought to drive us to the cross, to Christ. 
Because that's where we find salvation and freedom and forgiveness. Let your unholiness drive you to Jesus. That's where we're saved. That's where we're freed. That's what now we're in awe of God. We're so thankful for God. We're worshiping God. We're walking with Him. We're securing Him. Let your sin drive you to Jesus. And then the second thing I hope it means for us this week and beyond is that we live differently in light of the gospel. We, we should live differently. Look at some of what this might mean. Law people can't be humble. Gospel people can. Law people can't be forgiving. Gospel people can. Law people can't lift others up. Gospel people can. Law people can't be hopeful. Gospel people can. Law people can't be unselfish, but gospel people can. Oh, don't misunderstand me. That is not a comparison of Christians and non-Christians. Uh-uh. Well, I find Christians on both sides of that. I find myself on both sides of that. And what I want to say is this week, could we live differently in light of the gospel? Let it change us. And, and then lastly, for that to happen, uh, we're going to have to cling to grace-oriented motivations. See, motivation matters. Listen, both the Judaizers and Paul want us to follow the moral laws, but motivation matters. Totally different reasons, totally different motivations. Listen, think about this. Uh, will you look at porn this week? Shouldn't, but motivation matters. Or how about reading your Bible? Will you read your Bible? I hope you do. You should. It's good for you. You need to read your Bible. But why? Motivation matters. You see, if you are doing, you're reading your Bible to earn God's favor, that's slavery. The, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees read their Bible a lot, and they're jerks. But what if you read your Bible from grace and faith and the Holy Spirit and I'm hoisting my sails and I'm going on an adventure with God and I love God and I want to hear His voice in my life. That's a totally different motivation and that's freedom. That's freedom. Motivation matters. Our good works offered as worship to the one who saved us by grace. That's precious. But our good works offered to try to earn God's favor and save myself, that's damnation. That's slavery. Motivation matters. And notice how I worded it. Cling. Let's be honest. You'll get it right now. You'll Amen, pastor. It's easy on Sunday morning. Amen? You hit Monday morning. It won't even take us 24 hours, and we'll be back on the wrong side of the list, right? We're going to have to cling to it. We're going to have to fight for it in our minds and our hearts for grace-oriented motivation. And for that, I want to pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you very much that you did this in our lives. That, that even stretching back to the Old Testament, that it was always by grace. It was always by faith. It was always you. And you get all the glory and you get all the worship. In fact, that's what we want to do right now as a people of God. We want to worship you in light of what you have done in our lives. And then would you use that, Lord, drive it deep within us, because I know we gravitate back. We're foolish. Could this week, could we get it a little bit more? Drive it into our hearts, Lord, please. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.